Hello, everyone, once again, and welcome back to the podcast. It's 3 a.m., and this is important. I'm Matt, and with me, as always, is Jesse. Hello, hello. And today is kind of a special episode. Not really, but also sort of, yes. What are we doing? Doing a grab bag episode. A grab bag episode. And what does that mean exactly? It's basically just shorter form questions and answers that wouldn't necessarily fill an entire episode, but I don't know. Yeah. We thought we'd do anyways, you know? And since this is the last episode of the season, it might be fun to just close it off with a bunch of stuff we've been curious about in the past. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's a good closer, a good way to send us on our way until season two. Yeah, I definitely learned some things this episode, and I'm excited. And if that's not just the main purpose of doing what we do, just yeah. to learn. Learn. Knowledge is power. Having fun isn't hard when you've got a library card. Word. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. So where we, how do you want to kick things off, man? What do you want to do? Well, we've got like a kind of a mix of questions. Like Matt suggested most of them. I've got a few in there. So we're going to start with a bunch of yours, I think, first. Okay. I actually don't know the answers to any of the questions I asked. So this will be fun. I'll yeah. learn something now. What is the longest walkable path on earth? Ooh, yeah. And I thought I fucking knew this one. I was so wrong, though. Oh, really? I was like, oh, like Pacific Coast Trail or whatever, right? Right, yeah, that's kind of what Alaska I would Alaska to Mexico, that's what I thought yeah, it would be. Yeah, it's a very long path. I was wrong. Really? I was wrong by, like, a lot of kilometers. Well, I was hoping I would be wrong, so... Yeah. That's good. So, in 2019, Reddit user CBZ3000 played around on Google Maps to find the longest route that you could walk without having to cross an ocean... So okay. technically it's not, I wouldn't like say it's like one set path. Okay. But still, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to count it. Yeah. Okay. It stretches 22,387 kilometers. Wow. It runs from Cape Town, South Africa to Megadan, Russia. Okay. Which is basically like right across from Alaska and Russia. Yeah. Like so like right at the edge. Yeah. Literally right at the edge. Right at the edge of Russia. Of I think the Bering Sea. Okay. Sure. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Does it? Did, did it say how like long it would take you to walk that far? Like you betcha. <laughs> so across sixteen countries: South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Tanzania, Uganda, South Sudan, Sudan, Georgia, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, Romania, Belarus, and Russia. Cool. The route essentially ascends and descends the equivalent of thirteen Mount Everests. Oh my God! Google estimates that it takes. 4,492 hours or 187 days to walk the entire distance. However, this is assuming you could walk 24 hours a day, which you can't. Right. So more reasonably, if you walked eight hours a day, the walk would take 562 days to complete, not including rest days. Well, that's not bad. And <laughs> as you can probably guess, nobody's done it. Nobody's done it yet. Yeah, I would imagine they haven't. Yeah. It. I mean... Just the length and the kind of commitment that it would take. It's also, it seems like it wouldn't be the safest walk. It's not. That's like one of the reasons why it's not like been done. Like you're going through a lot of, you know, pretty yeah. unreputable places. Yeah, like you'd have to walk across literal war zones. Apparently visas are like impossible to really get in yeah. a few of these countries. You're also walking through some of the Sahara Desert. Right. Which, which would be might like not an be absolute doable. nightmare. 
yeah. it might be sort of doable, but not really. I'm sure like somebody will do it one day and there'll be like some crazy documentary about it or I something. I really hope so. But... I feel like, I feel like it would take you at least a couple of years to do it. Yeah. I, I'd say like two and a half years seems like a good goal. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the longest walkable path. That's Two, wild. 22,000 kilometers long. That's too many kilometers to walk, that's I too think. Many. I hate walking a kilometer. Yeah. So <laughs> multiply that by 22,000. Yeah, I'm not a big walker, but I definitely know after like a 10K hike, which I feel like you Pretty have, average. Yeah, is like very average. I'm definitely pooped. Yeah, it's a tiring amount of time to walk. I've never once the next day after going on something like that thought, let's do it again today. Yeah. You know, I've never. Let's do this every day for the rest of my life. For 562 days straight, so. It's a bit much. That's a lot. It's a bit much. That's a lot. bit much. Second question is, what are the first accounts of domesticated cats? Hmm. Which was kind of a fun one. According to the Smithsonian, humans began domesticating cats in 7500 BC. Okay. A while back. Yeah. Um, apparently, we used to use weasels for pest control before, like, cats kind of came into our lives. Oh. Yeah. Can you imagine if that trend kept up? So Everyone weird. has pet weasels. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it at all. Weasels are weird and nasty. Weasels and... are weaselly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But then we switch to cats because they're better hunters, first and foremost, and then they're way more pleasant to have around the house. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Uh, domesticated cats came right along with us because they've been around for so long um, during the age of discovery. Okay. So we would keep them on ships again for pest control and they yeah. just kind of spread throughout the planet. Right. Right along with kind of Western Europeans as we, you know, discovered the new world and all that fun stuff. Fun little bonus fact, cats apparently domesticated themselves. Wait, what? Yeah, so like 7,500 BC is about the time that we stopped. Domesticating weasels? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that we stopped like roaming around. And oh, we okay. actually like settled down. And apparently, yeah, once we started settling into villages and like little towns and stuff, they just kind of wandered in and... Cats were like, hey, what's going us. on with these people? Yeah, you got a warm fire. You got lots of mice. This running around setup. and yeah, they just domesticated themselves. Damn, that's amazing. Yeah, I thought that was like a neat little. I have like a little fun fact, fact about domesticated cats as well. Okay. Um, so I was playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla. <laughs> oh no. Okay. And every time you take off on your ship from your settlement, there is a cat in the boat. And I was like, that can't be a thing they did. And apparently it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> there was a ship cat. Because yeah. cats represented the goddess Freya. Huh. Yeah. Very And cool. she was like a protective goddess, right? So Yeah. I know, I think Athena in Greek mythology was represented via cats. There's right. also like obviously a fair few Egyptian gods that were represented via cats. Yeah. But that's very cool. Like we had to work hard to domesticate dogs, but. Yeah, cats just willingly gave themselves up. Yeah. <laughs> like, so cool. You know what? You can take care of me. Which I really like as a cat person. Nothing against dogs. Alrighty then. What kind of micro radiation are we exposed to on a daily basis? Yes, this was something I was fascinated about because I don't actually know what kind of radiation we're exposed to daily. A lot. Yeah. Constantly. Really? Yeah. I thought that was uh, like I knew we were constantly exposed to it, but like yeah. still learned a lot. The International Atomic Energy Agency says that based on where you are located, it depends. 
Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. High latitudes and proximity to the Earth's poles expose you to greater levels of cosmic radiation. And there are also just places on Earth that emit more background radiation than okay. other spots based off like the minerals in the ground and things right, like I that. Right. I guess that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. They further explain that everything around us emits radiation. Oh. The planet itself emits it from like our core. Okay. There's also the minerals in the Earth. We're exposed to it from space in the form of cosmic radiation. So right. any radiation that comes in from space is cosmic radiation. Sure. The water we drink and the food we eat all contain trace amounts of radiation. And oh. this is so cool, but we even have naturally occurring radioactive material in our own bodies. Really? Yeah. Isn't that neat? What the hell? Yeah. Obviously, radioactive? it's like non-harmful, but yeah, all humans are literally radioactive. I'm radioactive, radioactive. It's real. It's real. It's true. They were telling us, they were trying to educate us. Amazing. But yeah, I just thought that was like really fascinating. That, that is, when you're born, you have radioactive material in your body. That's interesting. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Wow. So a safe yearly amount of radiation for a regular person is listed as one millisievert per year. Okay. And for radioactive workers, that number bumps up to 100 millisieverts a year. Oh. So for, and for kind of just as a quick reference, a standard x-ray um, exposes you to 0.2 millisieverts of radiation. Okay. So most of us are like well within the range of just one. Sure. And uh, yeah, when I worked at the airport, I did x-rays, Yeah, I guess right? you did x-rays and stuff, so you were we exposed had, to that. Yeah, we had all sorts of radiation, but they had like lead curtains and stuff. Right. And, they did like measurements and things and there was like zero extra radiation. I also find it fascinating that we but, still use lead as the safeguard for radiation. Why is that? Well, I don't know. We've just never come up with anything else that can, you know, protect us from yeah. radiation rather than just lead. It's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything denser, but it's got to be the most cost effective option, I suppose, if we're still using it. Yeah, I would suppose so. Yeah. And it's the only thing we basically use lead for these days. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that's like kind of about it that I have. It's all good. I yeah. think uh, I think that really answered the question. Yeah. And I learned something. You're radioactive. You're radioactive. What? It also wow. like specified, I guess, maybe just as like a footnote, like ionized radiation. So right. radiation being like the breakdown of atoms over time. Yeah. And then like electrons and like whatnot shoot out of the atoms. Sure. And then... The, those things that are shooting out of the atoms become the radiation. But ionizing radiation is radiation that can, like, affect us. And right, like, that's actually harmful radiation. Yeah, can, like, harm harm us and stuff like that. And really, there's not anything supernatural that we right. would come across consistently that contains ionized radiation. Okay. Most radiation either goes right through us without ever hitting us. Right. Or is just straight weak enough that, like, our skin can actually block it. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. So very rarely do we come in contact with that so it's not really an issue all right yeah interesting and that's why we all don't have cancer all the time not all the time well cancer from radiation all the time right when and why did we start milking cows yeah that's uh that's one that i've always wondered this one was tough so we don't know who the sick fuck was <laughs> <laughs> that first milked a cow <laughs> <laughs> Some of that guy's brain wasn't right. <laughs> yeah. That's fucked up. <laughs> I'm going to squeeze that. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get me some cow titty. <laughs> but basically all we do know is that the first evidence of us milking cows is dated to 4,000 BC in Britain and Northern Europe. Okay. 
the reason we know that is because archaeologists have found like clay pots and stuff from the Neolithic era. Right. And just found fat content from bovines. Okay. And that's kind of like how we know, how we've dated it. I guess that's not a bad metric to use. Yeah. I didn't really find a why either other than milk. It's just useful. Yeah. Other than milk being yeah. beneficial. I just really want to know what was going through the whoever yeah. milked a cow first. What was going through their head when G- they saw that big fat udder? Give me that cow juice. <laughs> Do you think I could squeeze those things and something might happen? Well, I mean, clearly they know that they produce milk yeah, from, yeah. like, calves and stuff. But yeah, and honestly, maybe it was someone that was just, like, starving one day. And, like, decided to try out cow milk because just, they had nothing else. Yeah, just desperate. But they and, didn't want to kill their cow because then yeah. that ruins mating possibilities and all that. Or maybe someone just had a kink and... Really wanted to suck some dangly bits. Convince someone to try it, too. Yeah. Whatever the process was... Still being used today, so congratulations. You started something. You started something. What animals perceive wider color spectrums than humans? That's something I know. I know there are animals that see wider spectrums of color. I just don't know what they are and what they see. Yeah. Also, it just blows my mind that there's more color than we can actually perceive. I know. Such a cool thing. It, I think that actually bothers me. Really? I wish I could fucking see more than I see. I want to know what other colors there are because, like, you can't think of a color that doesn't exist. You can't. Apparently, uh, women see colors slightly better than men do. Yeah. It's in shades of red, I think. That's, like, the main misnomer between men and women. Is it? I know more men are colorblind by, like, a lot than women. Yeah. Essentially, humans have cones in our eyes. That's how we see colors. Yes. Rods being, of course, our kind of light receptors. Yeah. Um, But humans have three cones. Each cone sees red, green, and blue. Right. RGB, the main primary colors that we can see. Yes. I kind of want to start off with the Mac Daddy. The Mac Daddy. Of color reception. And in my opinion, like top three coolest animals on the planet. Wait, can I guess what it is? Of course you can. I feel like it's the mantis shrimp. It is. Yes. It is the mantis shrimp. I don't know why I remembered that, but yeah. That has like a, that punches its fucking victims. That's why I like it so much. I don't even like it because of the color. I just like that it punches so fast it creates a vacuum in the water. Yeah. And like, I don't know, it's like 76 feet per second or something. Yeah, it's basically like the only real world example of a Hudukin that we have. Yeah. So cool. So badass. (laughs) Um, but not only does it have a crazy punch, it has 16 cones in its eyes. So like 16 different forms of cones. Yeah. So I can see 10 times better than we can, or like 10 times more colors than we can see. I want to know what those colors look like. I know the world would be Imagine, so dude, crazy. It would be so beautiful, I, I bet. Know. It would be so confusing. I know. Oh. Something that like psychedelics really taught me, I think, doing those for the first few times anyways, was yeah. just like... I don't know. We, yeah, exactly. As you said, we can only perceive what we can perceive. But yeah, there's can't so, see a color that doesn't exist. Yeah, their perception of the world is just, it's got to be vastly different. Oh, yeah. And you can probably see so much more. Probably so much more beautiful than what we can imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's a freaking shrimp. Just even being able to see like ultraviolet or gamma mm-hmm. rays must yeah. be so neat. So in addition to the mantis shrimp, all birds can see more colors than we can. They're just better okay. than we can. That makes sense for their, like, their ability to see things 
from a wide distance, right? Like from a very far distance. Well, that's like kind of another, that's like a whole different thing. But being so, able to make out the differences in colors and movement and stuff, I think makes that would sense. help, right? Yeah. Of, well, yeah, of course. Um, so basically the primary difference is that they have an ultraviolet cone. Okay. So they can see in the ultraviolet spectrum, which right. obviously we cannot. And that just adds an insane amount of colors. They also have a colored droplet of oil like within their eye. Oh, really? That further enhances the amount of colors they can see. Damn, I wonder if we can extract that and see if it does anything. <laughs> and inject it into our own eyes. Yeah. <laughs> that would be wild. Right? But yeah, I thought I thought that was pretty cool that they can do that. There's also an eagle, like eagle's eyes and like certain hawk's eyes are basically like telescopic lenses. Oh, just yeah. the, with the shape of their eye, just like you mentioned. So on top right, of the so extra they... color, they can like almost zoom in with their eyes, right? right. They can see for like... Hundreds and hundreds of meters. Crazy. And we cannot? No, we cannot. On top of birds and mantis shrimp, we also have all butterflies and bees. All butterflies and bees? So bees actually also only have three cones, but apparently they're just like better than ours are. And they can, through that, see just more colors than we can. Interesting. Or like a wider range, I guess, of the RGB mixtures and colors and things. So that's cool. Butterflies are the same as birds. They can see in UV light. Oh, nice. That's part of the reason they're colored the way they are, like can come right. in so many like various shapes and sizes. That makes sense. I bet butterflies would look vastly different to us if we had ultraviolet perception. Yeah. And that's kind of all I went into. We actually have a surprisingly good range of colors that we can see compared to like the animal kingdom at large. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a species that I've missed that have a better range, but those are kind of the main ones. Right, okay. I do want to give a super special shout out to David Attenborough's documentary series on Netflix called Life in Color. David Attenborough! So cool. Love that guy. Um, but it covers a ton of different animals that can see more of the like color spectrum than we can. And it shows you what the world looks like through their eyes. Oh, that's cool. So we can actually, you mentioned butterflies earlier. They like developed a lens yeah, where it shows you what butterflies see and then it you know, shows a Damn. bunch of butterflies and they're doing their all sorts of things. And Yeah. I'm going to watch that shit. Yeah, if you haven't, it's great. I haven't seen it. There's like one species of crab in it where basically, even though they look like red to us or whatever color they were, I think it was red, maybe yeah. reddish brown. Anyway, um, they actually like absorb a ton of UV light and so they appear black. Oh. So they stand out. Okay. Like when they're all on the sand on the beach and stuff, they've got like these huge freaking claws that they hold up in the sky so that it's just like this big black blob <laughs> that other female crabs can see. Interesting. Okay. Anyways, yeah, there's all sorts of cool That's examples wild. about it. And yeah. Very, very cool. I really, oh, nope. I'm not going to say anymore. I'm not going to spoil it for those who haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, go check out Life in Color like I'm going to later. But it's worth it. What are some weird forms of ancient contraception? Weird forms of ancient contraception. So I think most of us have probably heard that like condoms originated via sheep's intestines. Yes. Which is Which in in of itself is really fucking weird. And I can't imagine doing that. Yeah. But, you know, anything for the nookie. Yeah. I mean, having a baby was an even bigger responsibility, I feel like, back in the day. Or less of a responsibility. I bet it was really easy to kill a baby back then. Well, probably. Just saying. Like a lot of them died before they could get any older. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess if you go into like really old graveyards, I've noticed there's a lot of kids there. Yeah. It scares the shit out of me. Like it always makes me so sad. 
Yeah. You hear, I've heard like a few stories of like really, really old folks, like 90 years old or something. And I don't know, they're yeah. Irish or Italian or somebody with a huge amount of family and be like, yeah, I had like 10 brothers and like seven sisters. And I don't know, eight of them died before they were five. Yeah. And that was just how life was. It was just life. And that's why the mortality rate has changed so much dramatically. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because people didn't live as long. It's because there was so much infant death and young death, right? Exactly. Yeah. If you go back to like medieval times, if you go like that far back, we weren't living as long. Right. We could. Absolutely. There were individuals that lived to be like 80. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Like you said, so many of us died when we were just wee little humans. Yeah. So anyway, we're tangent, but contraception. (laughs) Yeah. So back in the day, ancient Egyptians used to mix honey and something called acacia together to form like like a block, like a solid thing. Right. They basically shoved it up their vagina and it sealed off their cervix. And then afterwards, I guess they would dig around in there. Oh, that sounds so uncomfortable. Oh, it gets worse. No. Then, I don't know if you've heard this one before, but crocodile dung. Wait, what? Again, ancient Egyptians. Yeah. For whatever reason, they believed that if you shoved a bunch of crocodile shit up your pussy, it would prevent pregnancy. I hate it. Yep. Thanks. I really hate that. Yeah. That's like the uh, the the oldest form of the Alabama Hot Pocket. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask. You said it. I have to know. I have to know. No, d- just think about it. The Alabama Hot Pocket? Yeah. Tell me. No. <laughs> Look it up on Urban Dictionary. Okay, fine. Leave that to your own personal research. No, I'm doing it on, I'm doing it on God, podcast time. God damn it, I can tell you. I just don't want to. It feels gross, but it's the same deal. Me and this girl last night were doing some kinky shit, and then I gave her an Alabama Hot Pocket, but it, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, reverse Alabama Hot Pocket? No, no. No! <laughs> Why? A sex move where one shits into the woman's vagina. Oh my yeah. God. That's not real life. It's on Urban Dictionary, so it's got to be real. <sighs> yeah, it's bad. Gross. Don't don't you dare kink shame anybody, Jesse. Lead and dare. mercury. Wait, lead and mercury yeah. were used as contraception? So ancient Egyptians again. Assyrians, what the hell, guys? Greeks. And Chinese They women. really didn't want to get pregnant, and they were very, very... Yeah. Uh, they would drink liquid mercury and liqu- liquid lead, or even arsenic, or combinations of all of them. Okay, well, I mean, that is effective, you know, for men. Yeah, but it was women. It's all women. Oh. Men are never responsible. Why are men... All, why is, why is, do men always get off? Like, why is it always the woman that has to be contraceived? Because dudes suck. Yeah, like you unload the gun, you don't put on another bulletproof vest. Yeah. Come on, guys. But that's what they used to put But I guess if you drank and... enough of any of those things, you can't get pregnant if you're dead. So <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Murder? <laughs> just okay. drink all this mercury and you won't get pregnant. Wasn't I, a lie. I guarantee she just it. didn't make it. She just didn't make it. So she can't get pregnant now. Then we have Silphium. Um, which was a thing in ancient Rome and Greece. Women used an oral contraceptive called silphium, which was basically a species of giant fennel. And then they would soak cotton or lint in the juice of the herb and then right. insert that cotton into their vaginas. Okay. They thought that would prevent it. 
I just don't get like the logic doesn't make doesn't add up for me. Even back in those days, like you don't think that did they not know that it was the man getting the woman pregnant? Well, I don't think like I don't know. I have I didn't look it up or anything, but I don't think they really knew sperm was like a thing. Yeah, I guess they would. They just right? knew that sex led to babies, right? Yeah. I don't I don't know if they But if they were smart enough to block off the cervix, then Well, I guess they must have known that the then it had yeah, something to do with get something it. getting in there. Yeah. So, so, I don't know. Yeah. Dummies. Bunch of dummies. There's Queen Anne's lace, which was an effective form of birth control used for thousands of years. Oh, yeah. Um, some people still use it today, Wait, what? actually. Yeah. Okay. What is it? It's basically referred to as wild carrot. Hippocrates, 2,000 years ago, used it as an oral contraceptive. Unfortunately, though, Queen Anne's lace chemically resembles hemlock, which is highly toxic. So, oh. like, it's effective, but it also wasn't great and people are still using this yeah apparently some women i'm sure it's like kooky ladies i don't know i don't want to shit on anybody that does it but like but also it's kind of harmful to do it yeah if it's if it's, it's you not, know analogous to hemlock and it's some toxic shit yeah then we have olive oil all olive oil yeah proposed by aristotle women oh, okay. in greece used olive and cedar oils to decrease sperm mobility and then so, so the idea was they would pump themselves Full, full of olive oil. olive oil. And then it like would reduce nice, the mobility. Yeah. Just all up in there. And then it would get, basically give them enough time to like douche themselves out. Okay. So they just thought it would slow it down and then they Man. could really rush in there and douche that stuff and then they'd be fine. Those poor women. I tell you, man. Yeah. Lemon was also very common. People would shove citric acid up there. Oh, no. Believing that it had spermicidal qualities i mean it's acidic which it does so yeah but yeah they would like shoot it up there they would soak sponges or cotton and lemon juice and just let it soak in there for a while right there were also douches so in a very similar vein women would shoot up seawater lemon juice and vinegar things of that nature god damn and then uh yeah then we had condoms 1600s were the first known use, and of course it was animal membranes, so we have intestines, bladders, things like that. Right. Wow, and, that, was uh, a, that yeah. was a lot more of a journey than I thought it would be. Yeah, lots of different ways, I guess, right? Like yeah. It, it's not too surprising, I guess, that we, over the years, had a bunch of different ways, but... Yeah, I guess... All of which sound yeah. horrible, by the way. Yeah, it sounds rough. Sounds fucking horrible. Like, all of that sucked. Yeah. I hated it. <laughs> but, yeah... <laughs> Humanity is a weird thing, man. My favorite part was the Alabama Hot Pocket. No. <laughs> <laughs> Who invented the Squatty Potty and what inspired it? Mm. As a lover of the Squatty Potty, I'm I glad love you my Squatty Potty. Wanted to delve a little deeper. Bobby, Judy, and Bill Edwards were the inventors of the Squatty Potty. Thank you, fellas. A company whose worth is now north of $100 million. Hell yeah. Good job. Well, dude, I mean, it's a life-changing product. Yeah. Like, for speaking from personal experience, I poop in luxury, man. We do not go to the bathroom very well. No. In the West, like... No, we suck at it. I think bidets are probably the number one. And then a, I'd put a squatty potty behind a bidet, personally. But, yeah. like, those two things are so cheap and improve your quality of life so much. They do. They really, really do. Yeah. And as a hairy man, having a squatty potty and a, a bidet is, yeah. like... I don't poop anywhere else. Yeah. I make sure that I do it here where it's comfortable 
and I'm going to have the luxury experience that I deserve. <laughs> that fits my needs. <laughs> that fits my needs. <laughs> yeah, it's great. They're great. So and they I were invented by, I think Judy was the original inventor, but like okay. Bobby and Bill kind of snuck their way in there and right. helped run the company. So their names were listed, but I do think it's Judy. Well, you do need help, it. right? Like you're probably going to need help to push a product like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and while I couldn't find anything concrete, they likely took inspiration from the many cultures around the globe that squat to poop. Yeah. Because there's two types of poopers on earth. Are there? You got your sitters you and got you got your, your squatters. squatters. Uh. So a ton of countries squat. Um, I know China, Indonesia, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, South Korea, Taiwan, and a ton of others all squat. Yeah. Not all of them squat, but... And Japan. Yeah, Japan. I think I... Did I miss Japan? Yeah, Japan does that too. Uh, the two primary reasons for squatting just seem to be a lack of toilets in general. Right. And bidets. So like all the squatter countries are all all have bidets essentially. Yeah, it's a pretty you, regular thing. You just need it. Yeah. But there are benefits to it, right? Like it, like physiologically, we are more efficient at pooping when we are squatting. Yeah, apparently it straightens out your colon a bit more or something, right? Exactly. That's yeah. exactly what it does, yeah. There's like a little bend when we sit and putting our legs up gets rid of it, unkinks the chain. Yeah. and Makes uh, sense. Yeah. Gotta make sure that hose is straight. Exactly, yeah. We evolved to squat ultimately, right? Like yeah. we were squatters for millions of years. So, yeah. Um, you asked this one, which was pretty vague. What is the number one bungee jumping location and why? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I asked this question, but That's I was okay. curious. Uh, uh, well, I kind of have an answer for you. All right. The Zhang Zhaiji. It's Chinese, I'm It's Chinese glass bridge bungee in China. So it's oh. the longest in the world at 260 meters. Oh, cool. Okay. Which is like very neat. Yeah. Um, I tried looking up information on the busiest one, but there just wasn't numbers available. Right. You know, so the longest one is in China, 260 meters. Okay, cool. And it's uh, off of a glass bridge. Yeah, it's off of a glass bridge. That's insane. Yes, that sounds fun. Yeah. And right, let's go do it. I'd, I'd love to. I'm slightly terrified though, because you can have like aneurysms, which is one of my like crazy fears. Yeah, it's like your main... Doing it. Like if you've got like a weakness and you're freaking... Well, it's only one way to find out. Brain, yeah. I mean, that's one way to go. Yeah. You know, would truly be bungee jumping. Yeah, or there's line snaps or... Yeah. Oh, have you seen any of those videos? Yeah, it's scary as fuck. I don't know how you don't plan that out. Yeah. Like, it, it, I guess, but I guess anyone can just set up and buy a bungee cord. Yeah. And then you can crazy. jump and hope it works out. Yeah, I'd love to one day. There's one on uh, near the Capilano Bridge in BC. No, yeah. It's very cool. They're installing it's one like in over a canyon. Really? Yeah. Ooh, Golden would be great for it. They just built a rope bridge there, too. Did they really? Yeah. They're <sighs> actually doing a bunch of stuff. They're I also love putting Golden. in like a zip line as well. Good. Yeah. Where's, uh, oh, this is such a side note tangent that nobody's going to know about. Where's the fucking forest? Do you remember the forest? The Enchanted Forest? The Enchanted Forest. Whereabouts is that? Is that uh, closer to Revelstoke or is that closer to. It's closer to, it's close-ish to Golden. It's, I think it's a bit closer to Revelstoke than Golden though. Yeah. 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 The Enchanted Forest. (sighs) Yeah. Go check it out if you're ever on the road to Revelstoke or Kelowna or just in that general BC area. Yeah. It's along the transcontinental highway in BC somewhere. Yes. It's got. I don't know exactly where. Yeah. But I know that I just drove past it like a couple of weeks ago. Yes, you did. Yeah. It's definitely before. Before Kelowna. Yeah. 
Anyways, that was completely unrelated to anything. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even related to bungee jumping. It just popped into my brain. But yeah. <laughs> what is the actual measure of horsepower slash how do they measure the power of one horse? Yeah, that that's something I'm, I'm wondering about. So essentially all I got was horsepower, the common unit of power, i.e. the rate at which work is done, in the British imperial system, one horsepower equals 33,000 foot-pounds of work per minute. So that's oh. the power necessary to lift a total mass of 33,000 pounds, one foot in one minute. Okay. Which is kind of all I got. I didn't wasn't able to find how they measured the power of a horse, per se. Or why it's based on horsepower, why it's called horsepower. Yeah. I didn't really get that far, to be honest with you. This one was kind of a quick one and done, but it did kind of blow my mind at like 33,000 pounds. That's a lot. And my car, I think, I mean, it's just like a f basic four-cylinder Ford, but it's like 180 or something horsepower. Yeah. That's a lot of freaking pounds. Yeah, that's a lot of horsepower. That's yeah. a lot of horses. That's a lot. That's a lot of foot pounds. That's a lot. Just really put know. into perspective how powerful some of these freaking cars are. Yeah, when you hear a car that's got like 250 horsepower and you're like, yeah. cool, that's neat. Or like, doesn't the Hellcat have like 700 horsepower or something insane? Perhaps. I know nothing about the Hellcat. Me neither. It's got a cool name. It's yeah. got a lot of horsepower. It's got it's, it's a cool name, lots of horsepower, lots of horses in that that boy. Ooh, slap the roof. <laughs> this, this bad boy can fit so much fucking spaghetti in it. <laughs> then we have, why do some farmers' fields appear circular from above? Something I noticed when I went on a plane for the first time was, yeah, right. so many of them. You're just like flying over just circles, yeah. constant giant circles. And uh, the answer was exactly what I thought it was going to be. So it's due to something called center pivot irrigation. Oh, right. Which is literally exactly what it sounds like. It's a giant length of tubage and like sprinklers. It's a really yeah, those long sprinkler on wheels, system. Right? Yeah, yeah. And they just, they just spin, spin around in a circle. And that's it. It's so very neat. I guess the convenience of having that system outweighs the benefits of like making use of all the land. Because there's definitely so. like a bunch of wasted land, right? If you're looking yeah, at a true. squared piece of land. Yeah, totally. But I can see that being more efficient just because you can just hook it up. Yeah. And drive in a circle. It must be, right? If that's how all the farmers are And then are you doing just it. have like, I, I suppose you could do like somehow on a rail system. It would be a lot more complicated. Yeah. Right. And then you could yeah. do a square field. But yeah, yeah I, I don't know. The thing that I always liked about being in an airplane is being able to see the separation of property. Mm -hmm. Like the actual property lines. Yeah. Where like the colors change and all that kind of stuff. And to see like how many different like crops farmers are growing and yeah. one like presum presumed... I don't know, plot of land. Because you only see what you can see from the road, right? Yeah. There's so much freaking land outside of that. Yeah, it's so vast and you only see so much. But when you yeah. get an aerial view, it's all like so quilted together. Yeah. It's very cool, I think. Yeah. I remember being able to recognize canola. Oh, yeah. With all the little yellow dots around. Yeah. Hey, cool. That's canola. I don't know what that is, but I know that's Everything canola. else you can't really tell, I think, right? Maybe wheat. I don't know. Everything yeah, else is just green. That's green. We're green. not farmers, though, you know? Yeah. We don't have the farmer's eye. <laughs> farmer's eye view. I don't the, know. The, the farmer's vision. Yeah. But that's why. Neato. Center pivot irrigation. Very cool. Why were ancient animals bigger than they are now? Ancient animals? I might, I might know the answer to this. Shoot. Is it because of the concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere? Partly. Mostly. Yeah. Okay. 
So like I knew that already for bugs because I knew we have to used to have like three foot long dragonflies or like crazy things like yeah. that. I did know that. So yeah, basically there's a few possible explanations. The first being Earth was much more oxygen rich. Right. So this allowed bugs especially to grow to massive sizes compared to today. Sure. As animals get bigger, their lungs and hearts have to work harder to transport the oxygen throughout their bodies, right? Right, yes. That's kind of pretty basic stuff. But essentially with a more oxygen-rich environment, the heart and lungs just had to work a little less hard than they normally would. Right. And that was compensated to, you know. To growing bigger. To growing bigger. I guess that makes sense, you know. Yeah. Um, certain dinosaurs also had like bird-like bones. Right, that, so they like were a, light. Yeah, so they were light. They were large but light. Yeah, and they didn't collapse upon themselves by the sheer right. weight. Because I think like one of the biggest dinosaurs ever recorded, or land dinosaurs anyways, was like 47 tons or something, like seven times the size of an elephant. Right. Um, so yeah, the hollow bones definitely helped with that. Oh, for sure. There's also something cool. It's a theory called the Copes rule or the Copes rule. Okay. Anyways, it states that animals continue to grow larger the longer a species is around. Oh. And that once, like, an extinction-level event occurs, the bigger animals die off, and the smaller animals that survive grow on to be bigger over time in their place. Okay. Which is, like, fairly easily disputed since we have evidence of animals growing smaller over time. Right, yes. So, yeah, if, if being smaller becomes advantageous to survival, a species will definitely adapt to be smaller. Yeah, but especially since... Chickens are related to T-Rex. Yeah, yeah. And like... <laughs> so much tinier, right? Yeah, I'm not I'm not afraid of chickens. Yeah. But like it, uh, for a long time, apparently it made a lot of sense because that is weirdly how it worked. Like I, I was thinking about this earlier today, but even like our last extinction level event, the Ice Age. Right. We had huge animals. We had the saber-toothed tiger, the woolly mammoth. We had the giant sloth or whatever its name was and then extinction level event all the big ones are gone and And all the small ones survive who knows and then I also thought about how like humans in general are becoming larger but I know that that's like thought to be just because we're more resilient to disease and we're healthier as children and we can grow bigger from that but and there's more hormones in everything now yeah we could maybe maybe one day we'll be like eight feet tall or something I hope so yeah the society of giants. Yeah. Basketball gets cooler and cooler. We're going to have to redo all the doors. Yeah. That's going to be annoying. We already should. I mean, I mean, yeah. Well, if I was not any taller, tall. I would have to duck through yeah, doors. That's true. And like, I think Ev has to duck through doors. Yeah. I think I've seen him duck through so like six, quite five. a few, quite yeah. a few doors. Yeah. Yeah. So I love going to his house. So for those who don't know, Everett is a really tall friend. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, or something. And he's got three older brothers that are all taller than he is. Yeah, he's the short one. <laughs> and I'm 6'2 six, six, on a good day, whatever. Um, <laughs> on your stretchy days? <laughs> on my stretchy days. And going to his house is like a godsend. Everything's huge. Like the all shower the is actually oh, yeah, the above shower. my head. It's yeah. so nice. <laughs> we should be doing it already if you ask me, but hey. All right. When was the first burger created? The first burger. Matt and I got in like a mini argument. Yeah. <laughs> where I was wrong because I, I, I really truly thought burgers were older than they were. But apparently the first hamburger was created in 1900 by Lewis Lassen, a Danish immigrant owner of Lewis's Lunch, a small lunch wagon, which yeah. I think is like a food truck. Yeah, that's what we were talking about. Like, was yeah. that maybe the first food truck ever? 
Yeah. It was it's not like a lunch, it's not like a lunch stand. It's a lunch, lunch wagon. wagon. So it's Implying a wagon. that it's portable, so it's gotta be. But yeah. So anyway, it's also astounding that the burger wasn't invented until nineteen hundred. Yeah. Because we had sandwiches for a long time. And the burger is an is essentially just a sandwich. But with yeah. It's not like some revolutionary thing, right? It's just a chunk of fucking meat that you put between bread. Yeah, which is still a sandwich, but it's a burger now. Yeah. So whoop de friggin' do Apparently, it gained national recognition at the St. Louis World Fair in 1904. Okay. And yeah. then, obviously, I guess they've taken off ever since because... Yeah, burger joints. Yeah. Have you noticed all the burgers we're surrounded by on a daily basis? Constantly. I had a, bur- I had a burger for dinner. You did have a burger for dinner. It was great. And I had a burger for lunch nine times out of ten in the last (laughs) three or four years. Yeah. Freaking A&W being so close. So good. That damn Beyond Burger. I hate it now. I hate the Beyond Burger. Do you? Have you just had too much I just have had too many Beyond Burgers and I'm done. It's a damn tasty burger. (laughs) It is, but I'm over it. (laughs) Yeah. Pack your own lunches, man. I I have been recently, but uh, there was years there. Temptation. I get it. Hey, when I was in university, I had a I had a foot long subway sub for lunch every single day. Yeah, it's just that convenience factor, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I get right it. there. I don't have to do anything. Next question: How do maglev trains stop? I've always wondered about that. It's okay. supposed to be zero friction, or you know, as close to zero as we can get with yeah, an atmosphere. Yeah, but don't you need friction to stop? Yeah. How do you do it? How do you do it? Um, and I'm not going to get into it, like the really sciencey stuff, because yeah. honestly, I didn't understand it. Yeah. Well, you're it not a scientist. So, went yeah. way over my head. I'm not a physicist. I'm not an electrician. I don't know. So apparently, and I didn't know this, but the magnetism, the magnets and whatnot, yeah. all they do really is just make the train float. So I thought like inherently... I don't know, maybe the placement of them or something propelled them forward. That was also its propulsion? Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. But it's not. It really, truly just... Just makes it float? Makes it float. Okay. And then an electrical current is pushed through the magnets and through the train or something. I don't even know. An electrical current is involved that propels the train forward. Okay. When it needs to stop, it's sim- they simply reverse the electrical current, and then the force of motion just goes against the train and eventually stops it. Okay, that makes sense. That's that's the the very simplified version that I understand. So they just reverse the the, the current. current, and then yeah, it just provide or yeah, it just provides like reverse thrust essentially on the okay. train, and it'll stop. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I have no idea how they work. Still, me neither. I don't, I'm not sure I'll ever really find out. This but might I, be a comforting fact for you. They also have wheels. A lot of them do have wheels. Like backup and, wheels? Yeah, like backup wheels that have standard brakes. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah, I figured that that would be a good safeguard just in case, you know, yeah. the electricity went out or something, you know? Yeah. Because you, you, is it electromagnets that make it float as well? Correct. I would think so. I don't know. You know, yeah. I'm bullshitting. I don't, I, I don't even. Motherforking bullshitting. Magnets yeah. and electricity are involved and, yep. And that train go. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Yeah. This one's like a little weird, but I've always wondered, what does per second per second mean? Per second per second. See, you said this and I didn't, I, I didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> I had no idea what you meant. 
Yeah. And I can't think of like, it's so frustrating for me because I can't think of like an actual concrete example, but I feel like in so many movies, there's always been like some sciencey guy that like, or like some, yeah, some really smart guy that's like, no, oh my God, the missile is traveling at a rate of like 1,000 feet per second per second. Per second per second. Or the bullet traveled at like, yeah, like 200 feet per second per second or something. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I just can't put that together in my head. Okay. But wow. it's like, it's like a thing. I've heard it. Yeah. And movies and stuff. I believe you. I trust you. Okay. So essentially what it is, is it's a unit used for acceleration when the changes in velocity per second is divided by the change in time. Okay. Which is also in seconds. Right. So it's the measurement of acceleration of distance traveled in seconds and how much that that accelerates within a second of time. Does that make any sense to you at all? I'm trying. I'm really trying. <laughs> I'm really trying here. It's a measurement of distance traveled per second. Yes. And then a measurement of the rate of acceleration, how much it accelerates per oh, second. Oh, yes. Okay. So it's kind of the stacking speed of something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You think about it as acceleration per second per second. And like, right. I don't know. It sort of makes sense. So it's sense. going, like, let's just say it's going 10 meters per second per second so it would be an exponential curve then essentially until it stops so yeah so 10 meters per second per second would be it travels 10 meters in a second and then it no it would be (laughs) (laughs) 10 meters per second per second would mean that it's accelerating at a rate of 10 meters like it's going to be per second it's going to be accelerating 10 meters every second okay so like the rate of that it'll accelerate 10 meters per second Every second. Every second. Okay. So, yeah. Every, so I got, I think so, right? I don't know. Let, let me try to figure this out. I have, I have a fucking example. Here we go. Okay. okay. The velocity increased from five meters per second to 20 meters per second in time, in a time interval of one second. Okay. So if on one second, something moves at the start of that second, it's moving at five meters. And at the end of that second, it's moving at 20 meters per second. Right. The time interval or the acceleration would be 15 meters per second per second. Okay, yeah. So the difference of what it was traveling at the start of that second versus the end of that second. So it's literally it's an acceleration curve. Yeah, exactly. And it's exponential until it's stopped or slowed or whatever it is. I guess, yeah. I don't know. I, I assume it's like a bell curve where, yeah, it rises up per second per second. And then like yeah. if we're talking about like a bullet fired or something, yeah. then like it would slow down. Started off at five meters per second, went to 10 meters, went to 15, went to 20. Yeah, and then I guess by the it end would just of the be second, like it was negative. at 20. And then by the end of that, that next second, it would be at 35. Yeah, exactly. And then it would accelerate to a point and then it would drop. Yeah. I really hope you guys smoked weed before <laughs> this episode. <laughs> I think I understand, though. Yeah. I think I get it. Yeah. I think I somewhat understand. (laughs) I learned something about something I didn't know about before, so that's pretty neat. It's a real unit. Yeah, it's a unit used for acceleration. Cool beans. uh, Yep. Train go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the train is moving. (laughs) When a maglev train moves at a rate of 15 meters per second per second, (laughs) and then it needs to stop. Dude, stop with all your smart stuff. I'm getting way too much smartness over here. I'm educated, man. You trying right. to get smart with me? Uh, enough of them $10 words. Yes. And $1,000 topics. Let's go to why is a horse's height measured in hands? Why? Have you ever heard of that? Where it's like, this stallion's 
30 hands tall. Yes, I have heard that before. That's I live in Alberta. Stallion. Yeah. I hope you know. So essentially, horses are measured in hands because they didn't have standard measuring tools in ancient societies. So they commonly used hands to measure horses. Right. This tradition continued on to the present day. And now one hand is considered four inches. So a 50-hand horse is 60 inches tall. Wow. So it's just like feet. Yeah, just like feet. Except for some reason we used hands because I guess it was easier to stack. I guess so. Yeah, I guess you could really like... to lying on your back and like walking in the air or something. Like, hey, Dan, give me your feet for a second. I just need to measure something. Yeah. Like, I can use my own hands for this. Wow. Climb climb the ladder. Yeah. Just crazy. Very cool. Now we know. How does a sniper confirm a kill? I've always been curious about that. Yeah. I've got 20 confirmed kills. But how did you confirm? But how did you confirm it? Who confirmed it? So, essentially, the kill has to be witnessed and logged by another soldier. Oh. Usually the sniper spotter. Right. That would make sense. Yeah. But it also makes me a little sus of, like, the people that have, like, crazy confirmed kills. Because I feel like there's, at a certain point in, like, a war zone, like, there might be, like, some ego involved or something. Like Sure. Like, no, I killed him. I yeah. know I did. You're not, like, verifying. You're not going up to the body or anything. And there's, like, collusion with the... With the spotter, with the yeah. witness. Like, you're a team, right? Like, yeah. I feel like any kill is is absolutely a team effort in that situation. Yeah. So, like, maybe it's there's a success some for lion? the two. Exactly. And you don't want to admit that you failed, especially in a war zone or in a, in a, in a, a situation that involves yeah. one side doing better than the other. So, it just made me a little, little yeah. sus of the numbers a little bit, just knowing that. Yeah. And I think it's fair to be a little bit. Yeah. I don't know, skeptical about it. But that's it. That's really all it is. Just, yeah, witnessed and logged by another soldier. Navy SEAL Chris Kyle served four tours during the Iraq War, and during that time, he became the most lethal sniper in U.S. military history with over 160 kills officially confirmed by the Department of Defense. He himself is the weapon. Yeah. If you recognize that name, it's because he was the guy featured in or portrayed by Bradley Cooper in American Sniper. Yes. America, the movie. Truly. All right. So we're on to the last one. And this one's yours, Matt. Yeah, cap it off with a good one. I know. (laughs) When was the first vibrator invented? Who invented it? And why? Why, God, why? So the answer is we don't have an answer. Cool. (laughs) There's a common misconception that some random psychiatrist invented it. Like vibrators in the early... 20th century to treat women who are suffering from quote-unquote hysteria, but that's actually not true. Myth busted. Myth busted. God, I miss those guys. Yeah, me too. Man. Um, So yeah, no one's credited as having invented it. Okay. What we do know is that in the 1800s, something called vibrating tables were showing up in France. Vibrating tables. Vibrating tables where you could like lie on a table and the whole thing would kind of shake a little bit. Kind of like a massage bed, sort of. Sort of but like a hard table. Yeah. So that was like a thing. In the 1920s, vibrators were used to cure impotence in men. Okay. That is confirmed. Hmm. And apparently back in the day, like just men's sexuality was a lot more valid and open and accepted. Right. In like Western society. Because the patriarchy. Yeah. So men actually started using vibrators first, really. Huh. In the Western world. Interesting. Yeah. Just like how pink was initially invented for men as well. Was it really? Yeah. Huh. Well, not invented. We didn't invent pink. But like pink clothing and stuff was initially made for men. 
Some were skirts. Skirts, I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, skirts as well. After that, though, we can kind of jump forward 50 years. To the 70s. The 70s. And the invention of the Hitachi Magic, Magic wand. wand. The most incredible invention ever invented by any inventor. Yeah. Which really like just like kind of kickstarted the whole personal vibrator thing. Yeah. Um, to this day, I think it's But I know people that still popular. use the Hitachi Magic Wand. Me too. Me too. So fair few ladies I know. Yeah. Yep. It's just I guess it's the perfect invention. No need to upgrade or Yeah. It's also powerful as fuck compared yeah. to like other vibrators. No need to in- so innovate. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that's weird. because it's actually designed for like impact massaging. Yes. Right? Like that's what it was initially made for. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it's durable. It's great. Rave Lasts reviews. forever. Yeah. Then we can jump to the late 80s and 90s. Masturbation became just more and more mainstream and the rabbit vibrator dominated the market. Right. The I one mean, that goes in and stimulates, stimulates the old clitoris there. Yeah. The clitoris. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And then my favorite fact about this one, we're going to end the episode on this one because I thought it was just so goofy and so stupid. All right. It's not true, but it's hilarious. Okay. In her 1992 encyclopedia of unusual sex practices, Brenda Love claimed that Cleopatra used a gourd filled with bees to stimulate her genitals. (laughs) No! (laughs) (laughs) A gourd filled with bees? No! Oh, that just cracks me the fuck up. I I want it to be true so bad. I want it to be true so fucking bad. That's terrifying. You imagine the poor slave that had to fill that fucking gourd. <laughs> you fill this with bees. Like, jeez. Um, okay. <laughs> Why? Uh, you need so many bees in that. That's a lot of bees. Like, to get it going. Yeah, for like a decent vibrational energy. No way to do that discreetly either. Just No. Like, what, what is there a beehive around here? Yeah. It's like, no, nah, it's just Cleopatra. I'm like, what? <laughs> you imagine losing your grip on that thing, being a little too vigorous and shattering the gourd or something? Uh, like just... <laughs> endless pain. Uh, that's it. Wow, that was fun. That was. I think we learned some stuff. And I yeah. hope that you learned some stuff too, viewers or listeners, I mean. So yeah, that was great, and uh, thanks for sticking with us for the first twelve episodes of this of this uh, show we're making. Yeah, that's season one. It's been a pleasure. Really wrapped has. and wrapped and ready to ship off to every major outlet in uh, America, and yeah, just thanks. We we love doing this. I think. Yeah, I mean, I love doing it. I love doing it too. It's fun, <laughs> and it's great. And thank you so much for listening. And yeah, yeah, thanks uh, for the, sticking you know, along and. And while we're on hiatus making season two, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'll make sure to keep you updated on what we're doing, what we're mm-hmm. talking about. I won't give mm-hmm. away too much, but, you know, little updates here and there. Well, it's- I, I, I want to say something. You want to say something? Because I mentioned in, I don't know, the last episode or the one before that, that Area 51 was going to be a thing. You know, yeah. We're going to be a thing. We didn't end up covering it this season. We're going to have a two-parter oh, opening yeah. up for season two on yeah. Area 51. Two part Just a episode. little teaser. I'm going on a deep dive on this one. It'll probably be our longest episodes. I'm, I'm very, very, very excited. Very stoked. It's going to be fun. Man, I can't wait. It's going to be great. Yeah. And yeah, um, our Twitter handle is at it's 3 a.m. pod. That's at it's 3 a.m. pod. And with that, go to bed, everybody. Yeah, go to bed. <laughs>